Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the WGA strike as well as the SAG-AFTRA strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Also, please check out SAGAFTRA.org for additional resources. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Brussel, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. My first huge film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making another one called Best Friends Forever. It's a horror comedy. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Laura Moss to talk about their first feature, Birth Rebirth, how they got the film made at such a high level, and how they are dealing with not working during the strike. After that, we play another round of You're the Expert. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm buying a lot of, like, accessories and swag for my unborn child because we're recording these in advance so (laughs) the child is not born yet and i find myself overthinking like is my child a turtle or a woodland creature like what is she like what what color scheme do i ended up on a butterfly but like what what is she and what mobile should i get and like what color scheme should we get a strawberry hat or a stripe hat like just these very very silly questions about how like what are you surrounding your child with at an early stage and ultimately it doesn't matter they're just gonna poop and pee on it like it doesn't it doesn't matter it's for me i guess so i decided she's a butterfly my child's a butterfly amazing yeah perfect choice just make sure that the ecto one is within her view and then i think you'll be in good shape it is it's crib level right now I, i love it it's amazing. For those who don't know, the Ecto One is the car from Ghostbusters, uh, which Liz has a beautiful model of in her uh, in her view of her camera. Because Sean put it together. I want to be clear. I don't want to be a phony. I love Ghostbusters, but Sean made the made the model. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Well, well, so what? I'm obviously in this. So I'm like, my kids are about to be born too, any day now. I have bought like all. I got all the stuff. Everything is all set for the most part. But what are some of the things that you've gotten that you're like, oh, I'm so excited! I got this. I'm so excited! I thought about this. Is there anything that you could recommend for somebody who may not have, you know, gotten the same thing that you had? No, no, no. I'm like, the only thing I'm really adamant about getting is that booger thing. The booger sucker. Like, I'm oh, like. Oh, yeah. I'll, I remember that was very important accessory. Having a newborn is the booger sucker. I mean, for those who don't know, it's like the ultimate act of intimacy you have with your child is you're sucking boogers out of their nose with a tube. I hope everyone feels, I hope everyone's drinking their morning coffee when they hear that and <laughs> and maybe do a spit take. So like I'm trying not to buy as much as I bought 
the first time and I'm doing as many hand-me-downs as possible. But there are just those few things. It's like, we need a bath. So we're getting a bath, you know, like we're getting a bassinet that's a co-sleeper. I'm never, I didn't co-sleep with Colin, but I want to co-sleep with her. So I guess I'm excited Mm. about trying to co-sleep, like in the sense of that there's a bassinet between us and she's with us in the room or with me in the room. Oh, It's so funny. (laughs) We went to go buy one of those bassinets that like, you know, saddle up right next to the bed and that like you can just roll over. Yeah. (laughs) So Beth went to go pick it up from from Craigslist and she was really concerned because it was like, oh, maybe it's gonna be too wobbly. And then uh, she tried testing the, the, the wobbliness of it with the person and she's like, no, too wobbly. No, I'm not getting in. So she just like was like done. We didn't. We're not going to go through this deal. Oh, and we already have our our bassinet from our other kid from BB, which is like not one of those at all. It's like a standalone one, but it's super yeah. solid and super awesome. It's like a really nice one. And so yeah. I was kind of that glad that she decided to just stick with the one that we already have. You know, because you got to be picky. You got to be picky about these yeah. things. Yeah, you know, but we did get like a nice glider rocker for the bedroom. Like, so like, you know, we yeah. can in the middle of the night, like when we have to do feedings and stuff, we can like sit with the baby and we just, never like, got rock. rid of ours. We not got rid of, oh, never nice. got rid of the rocking chair. We'd use it as a regular chair. So we're just bringing it upstairs. That's awesome. But we got rid of everything else because we did not think we were going to have another kid. And oh, now wow. I'm like, oh shit, wipes. I forgot about the amount of wipes you need. Like just things. I think it's just like you forget people say you forget the pain of childbirth and it's like, no, you forget the expense of childbirth. (laughs) Like like, like Amazon, I'm going to spend like $300 on Amazon today. That's nuts. That's how it is. I mean, we spent so much money when our first kid was born, even getting the crib and getting the stroller and getting everything. We hardly even use our stroller. We use it sometimes. But like we, we like you know I mean I know some people are big stroller people and they like are always going out in the stroller but yeah. we just like would carry her or walk with her or whatever we had a, a hiking backpack that I would carry her around in you know uh, but I think we will probably use a stroller with the baby you know now that we we're gonna have a baby and a, and a, and a little girl and then like too, we actually. Yeah. We have the thing for our stroller where we can attach two, so we can attach the little baby crib on one side and then like the little toddler on the other side, so we can actually oh. be able to push them both together. Because you know what's going to happen as soon as I bring out the stroller, BB's going to want to crawl oh, into yeah. where the baby is. So like now she'll have her own little place to crawl into, so it'll be perfect. Have you, you seen know? those ones where it looks like almost like a skateboard stroller, where the like the the toddler, the preschooler, like basically uses it as a scooter? Oh no! And then That's there's cool. like at least so there's maybe there's something like that in yeah, the future. Very cool. Remember? Yeah, we'll see. Know. We'll see. What's going on with you? Yeah, I don't know. Just like making sure that we didn't forget anything. That's sort of like the stage we're at right now is like, do we have everything? Are we in a good place? I know everyone wants to hear about movie stuff, but like all we're talking about is babies, but that's okay. But this is about birth, rebirth. Like this whole show is about birth, rebirth. <laughs> this one was okay to talk this about okay. babies. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and we just packed our hospital bag finally. So we had done everything oh. but that, but we just did that. So I feel like we're in this place where like everything is done now it's just like, let's just re- kick back and relax and enjoy our time together until the baby comes, you know? And we were going to go to the beach tomorrow. And then we were like, wait, should we drive an hour away oh. from the house? Probably not. Like, probably max 30 minutes away from the hospital slash house. Like, it's probably as far as we should go. So, we, we, we're going to go to a lake that's about 30 minutes away. That's our, our compromise. Nice. Very yeah. nice. 
Yeah, I remember I was going to go to like a book signing for a friend of mine, like around the same time that you're at. And it was in Santa Monica, which is Los Feliz to Santa Monica on a on a weekday afternoon. People really want to hear about it. Could be like 90 minutes. And I had mm. to be like, I'm so sorry. Like, this is not going to happen. Like the, the, the fear of being in Santa Monica going into labor. Yeah, is that too would much. be terrible. Yeah. Although Santa Monica is beautiful. But, it's a beautiful place. You know, yeah. <laughs> Not not good for your for that situation, but that is good for your situation is to go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. That is the way the show continues to thrive and to live. It is one of the reasons why we're able to keep this going while we're both going to be on sabbatical with two babies for two months or or so, or maybe even longer or something like that. So yeah, go over the page and do what you can. One ninety nine will get you access to the back catalog to 400 episodes or 350 episodes of the show soon to be 400 episodes once we cross the 450 mark but also don't forget to check out at jambox.io they're a new royalty free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues their composers have worked on soundtracks for hollywood hollywood level films working with directors like martin scorsese and they even offer customized customized plans to fit your needs which is pretty awesome without any more delay here's our chat with laura moss Can you give us the elevator pitch for birth, rebirth? <laughs> oh God, it's been a while. I generally say birth, rebirth is a Frankenstein inspired female forward story about motherhood and mortality, but that sounds a little stuffy. It's, it's a Frankenstein movie where two women are co-parenting a reanimated child who functions as the monster. It's funny you ask this because I really do feel like the elevator pitch changes with the in terms of the type of room I'm pitching to. Is it the commercial pitch? Is it the elevated horror pitch to use a terrible term? I never Which know. Which one did you just give me? Gosh, a little bit of both. I don't know. Basically, it's Frankenstein with a little girl monster. You know, it's horror. It's going to be great. You guys. I don't know. Is that the commercial pitch? It's been a while. <laughs> How many days did you shoot the film? 24 days. A really tight shoot. We were basically three main locations and three main casts. So it was relatively contained in that way. But we did have a hell week where we were kind of bouncing all over New Jersey. I know you can't give us the exact number, but talk to us about the rough budget of the film. So we were in the 2 to $3 million range. I think it's safe to say we were the lowest paying union job on the Eastern Seaboard at the time. I checked. But we did have like an incredible New York union crew, many of whom, you know, many department heads were were functioning kind of at, at a level right above uh, what they're usually doing in terms of their job titles. So we had like real passion and investment from this crew. No one was doing it for the money. That's for sure. Can you talk to us about the origin of the idea, like where this story came from? Yeah. You know, I have I read Frankenstein when I was pretty young, probably like 13. And at the time, you know, I was being plied with, you know, the Jane Austen novels, Bronte sisters, these kind of stories of marriage and manners. And that's what I associated with work written by women. And when I read Frankenstein, I was blown away. And, and it really moved me. But I also this idea of this creator with agency, with delusions of grandeur, which with this obsession with eternal life. And I couldn't help but kind of identify Victor Frankenstein as a woman, as Mary Shelley. And learning more about her life and, you know, her miscarriages and a lot of the grief that she dealt with in her own life, it seemed natural to me that there be a version of Frankenstein where this 
doctor was a woman and where she might have to use the products of her body to, to create things with her mind. So I was thinking about it for a long, long time. And it really started, the, the screenwriting process started in the form of letters from prison, from the point of view of this doctor who had been reanimating infants and children that came across her table and was caught and was writing to the mother of a child she reanimated to justify what she had done, which doesn't happen in my movie, but is very much a sort of foundational inspiration for it. So yeah, it was percolating for many, many years. And then it took about six years from the completion of the first draft to the final cut. Well, you already answered my question, just how long did you spend working on the film from inception to release? But if you could change something about the film, which is our controversial question, if you could change something about the film in any way, the process, uh, the content, anything, what would would you what would you do? Yeah. I mean, no COVID. That would be great. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. You know, it's funny because I, I, I had this. We had 24 days to shoot. It was a 104 page script. Never enough time. And we cut a 93 minute film. So we cut pages and pages from the film, you know, scenes that we had shot that we opted not to use. And after we locked our cut, I went back in and did a paper edit, basically like did a version of the script that now suited the movie that we edited. Just to see how many pages, what 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 was missing, what order flipped. And it was 87 pages long. And I was heartbroken because I was like, if I had 24 days to shoot 87 pages, man, what could I have accomplished? So I guess I would have had, I wish I would have had the foresight to know, but it's sort of a silly exercise to think that way because so much of this process is about discovery. And, you know, I'm glad we shot that stuff. I'm glad we tried that stuff. I'm I'm glad I had it to, to play with in the edit and really discover my film with. So I guess no. I guess I don't have major regrets in that area. Yeah, that's so funny. That's the exact same thing I say about my first feature. Was yeah. that I? I wish I would have known when I was going to cut because I spent so much time shooting stuff that we just immediately cut from the movie, like on the second round. And I'm like, that was yeah. a whole day. That was a whole day we could have had to spend on other things that we didn't even get to shoot. That didn't even we didn't even get to see. You know, because we had to cut it like while we were shooting. So yeah, I, I agree. I feel the same way. <laughs> I wish yeah. I know. I knew. <laughs> I mean, you do, but I don't know if you feel this way. Like there are scenes that are very intense that we cut from the movie that I'm so glad the actors performed because I mm. think it it inf- it influences their performance in other parts of the film. Like I'm really glad that we did it. And do I wish we spent less time on it? Absolutely. But yeah, I feel like you can never really know. Is there a, a like a anything in common from the scenes that you cut? Was it a subplot? Was it one big chunk? Or was it just a bunch of little things? Well, there was one scene that was just sort of felt emotionally redundant. You know, it was it was a powerful scene, but we had another powerful scene that was kind of accomplishing that task in the movie. And then, you know, honestly, the things I cut, and this is a lesson I'll take into my next one, were the more intellectual scenes. You know, this this film is about motherhood and it is about childbirth and, and showing childbirth in many different manifestations. And so I did want to represent mothers in many different ways. And some of my representations that were a little less central to this like actual story of our protagonists that I thought were really nice to have in the film didn't make the final cut. You know, Too heady. Just, it, yeah, I felt like, okay, this is me making a statement about these themes rather than serving the story and, and doing what I need to do to move the story forward. So it looks like this is your first feature. Is that right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Not the first feature I've written, but the first one that was produced for sure. So I'd love to hear about how you raised, you know, I know it's a small budget, but like, you know, on, on indie micro budget film standards, it's a very high budget compared to what yeah. a lot of us get for our first features. So I'd love to hear about like, you know, did you always know it was going to be that much? And was that a plan? Like, how did you plan that out to get to that, that large number o- over any period of time? Yeah. I mean, so this isn't the first feature that Brendan uh, O'Brien, my writing partner, and I have written, and it's not the first feature we thought was going to get made. We had another script called Gordon that it was on the purple list, which was like NYU's version of the blacklist, and got a little bit of attention in the industry and is easily seven to $15 million. Just if you look at the, the set pieces and the size of the cast, and it's a period piece, it's not a cheap movie. And mentors tried to tell me that it wasn't going to be my first film. And I resisted that advice for a long time. And then eventually realized, you know, it's not going to be the first one. And and this idea, as I said, had per- percolating for a long time. But when Brendan and I went back to the drawing board and said, all right, what can we make that's contained? You know, what's our mumblecore film? We wrote this. I mean, this, this was the one that felt... Shootable. <laughs> What's really funny is it's definitely not a not a mumblecore, and it's got a lot of aspects to it that are not cheap. And you know, as I said, while there are contained elements to it, it still does have a pretty large cast. It's got extras. It's got special effects, a child, a pig, all kinds of stuff in it. And so, really, you know, it was I got Molly Elfman, who I know has been on the podcast before. She is a brilliant producer, and she came on on board this process pretty early. And I think, you know, real realistic budgeted out the film kind of in the one to three range is what we were talking to people about and some people offered us less and we really had to take a long hard look and say can we do this for under a million and do we want to in terms of what we'd have to sacrifice both in terms of what's on the screen and also you know how much we are able to pay our crew and molly and i decided that that we didn't want to go that route but that was a heartbreaking decision because that that was at a point where we weren't being offered more you know so it is that question of do you go with that financier who's basically saying if you can figure it out make it for this or do you wait and try to get it made elsewhere you know and i don't think there's one one size fits all answer to that question we just couldn't figure out how to do it for that budget range so eventually we we made it into the sundance screenwriters lab that was a real turning point for us in terms of being able to get the kind of budget that we're talking about we we i went to the labs with brendan in january of 2020 the movie was greenlit by shutter in early 2020 i i met emily gatto who's an executive there and she just really understood the script and really loved it. And they were financing. This was early on where they were. They had been financing scripts at a, a lower budget level, and they were just kind of bumping up their slate to to this budget range. So it was a it was a really it was perfect timing in one sense. But then COVID happened, and it was another two years of trying to figure out how to make this movie without all of the money going to COVID costs which is why we ended up shooting it uh, in the summer and fall of 2022. Wow. I may be misremembering. And if so, then our editor, Jeff, can cut off this question. (laughs) But I feel like a few years ago, I might have reached out to you and you had expressed something about taking a break from filmmaking during that time. I'm looking for a, a look of recognition in your eyes and I'm a little bit worried that I'm wrong. But were there ever any moments where you may have lost faith in 
the system providing support for this film? And if so, what kept you going and confident in pushing forward on this project or any of the other projects you were pushing forward? Hmm. Oh, man. Well, it is, you know, I think the biggest thing, and I'm sure I know, because I think Dave Lawson said this on your podcast, that, that, you know, multiple people must say this, which is just that it's so hard to get a film made that you have to really love the crap out of your movie. Because if you don't, you'll lose faith and the ability to kind of push that boulder up the mountain. We had we had an early kind of set of interactions with a different financier that wasn't a great fit for the movie. And they wanted certain stars, certain foreign sales names. They wanted it to be a different kind of film than it was. And I was turning myself into a pretzel trying to make myself okay with that. You know, the compromise of this is your first movie. You just got to get it made, you know, get it done no matter the cost. And that draft also became very humorless and very grim. And there was a period, and I don't know, I, I'd be shocked if I was transparent with you about this, Liz, at the time. <laughs> well, and I know we're like not best friends or anything. So I'm, this memory was really salient. <laughs> no, it's interesting. There was a period where I really just hated the movie. I hated this movie. And my writing partner, Brendan, who's such a sweetheart, reminded me of an exercise that I that I taught him that I love, which is, you know, when you're losing your oomph for the movie, print it out, take a highlighter and highlight only the things that you love. Uh, uh, you know, and just look at those and that's your tone and that's and just make everything else like that, which is something that I've done in the past. And so we printed it out and I started turning pages and and I and he would go, oh, I like that. And I, would, I hate it. And we would turn another page. <laughs> no, what about this? No, I hate it. And he was highlighting with his highlighter and I highlighted nothing. And I think part of it was the burnout from feeling like I was getting pushed in this creative direction. And, and now I was at odds with myself when I was reading the film but another part is that it's a it's a very dark story there are really intense themes in this movie and i would i needed it to have a sense of humor that it didn't at that point have so we eventually figured that out and and i i think the movie's funny we made it funny and it totally reignited my passion for the movie and i think also like when i found that tone was able to defend it better was able to really explain whether or not someone wanted to hear it why the choices that i that i wanted to make were important to the integrity of the story so that whole process with the other financier that was that well before the screenwriter lab at sundance and and then that what you came out with the more co- comedy the, the draft that had some humor in it is that the draft that got you into the sundance lab or was it much later that that happened no i mean around the year the calendar year where that where i was trying to make it work in that other situation it was that winter that the labs approached us i had applied to the labs two additional times with this script and gotten into the second round and not made the labs wow and i think that year i hadn't applied because i had a financier so i thought this this was not appropriate to apply to the labs and it just so happens that a playwright a brilliant playwright that i'm friends with uh, ricardo perez gonzalez was in the playwriting labs that year and told them about me and they reached out and said what do you have and i said this movie that you have rejected twice but if you'd like to read it again and they did and i got you know at that point i i I got an interview and i i was brendan and i went to the labs that january 
So yeah, it's definitely, I applied to labs five times. So, and I do like to say that as, as often as possible, because I feel like there is this myth that, you know, it just happens. And I, I think to a person, the other fellows that were in the labs with me applied multiple times. Yeah. So I have another follow-up question on, on the whole Shutter thing. So you get into the labs and then you said that you, you met this person from Shutter, and then you got along and whatever, but it, it didn't, it's probably not that easy, right? It's not like you just met them randomly. Like tell can you talk about how that all came together and like what you did to put yourself in that position to beat this person? Sure. Yeah. You know, the the thing about the, so the labs is they are really helpful in terms of, you know, you have these brilliant writers that are, that are paying a lot of attention to your work and giving you really incredible notes. So just on a creative level there, I, I found it to be a transformative experience. But on a practical level, the, the stamp of approval you get from being part of the Sundance Labs means that people want to meet with you. And I had this benefit of being in those labs and also being a genre film, you know, of which there are a few. My Year Nanny was another film that was in the Sundance Labs my year. And, you know, I think that there are companies, Shudder, Monkey Paw, you know, there, there are a few. I mean, A24 has their, their own horror thing going, but that are really looking for that kind of genre and art house Venn diagram thing. So Shudder was one of those companies. What the labs do is they they don't pay for you to go to Sundance because the, la- the labs take place for a few days before, before the festival. They don't pay for you to go to Sundance, but they do encourage you to attend. And when you do, some people will contact you personally. If you have a representative, they'll contact you. But there are definitely meetings that sort of come organically out of those labs. And I, and I do think the Institute tries to facilitate them as well. So I, I think that, you know, I, we do have Sundance to thank for getting on Emily's radar, for sure. I want to talk a little bit about the film's reception at this point. I mean, playing Sundance Midnight, some of the other festivals you've been to, having the runway leading up to this, do you feel like it it was like a wildest dreams fulfilled type reception or what has been your emotional response to getting the film out into the world? Oh, it's tough. You know, the, the, the film has gotten a pretty positive response. I think getting it made was such a feat, you know, that, that I, I do feel like I was telling myself certainly leading up to the, the premiere that no matter what, this is an achievement, you know, you have to celebrate it. I think, you know, kind of girding myself for negative reviews. And it was a scary premiere. You know, we opened the midnight section. So Thursday night, we were the movie. And the first review came in about 24 hours before the rest of the reviews. And that review was scathing. And I remember thinking like, okay, here we go. My my background is production design, and I have been with other filmmakers through this process, you know, with films that I didn't direct and watch this happen, watch them sort of get to this great moment of their film's premiere and then have a tough time with reviewers. So I was kind of trying to mentally prepare myself for that. One of the great benefits of working with Shutter and, and having them as our, our full and sole financier was that we had our distribution. So we didn't have to sell this film at the festival. I think the biggest, the highest stakes were really if it, if it got a great reception, we knew we might have a chance at the a theatrical release. And if it didn't, likely not. So we, we, we did get a good reception for the film. And I'm happy to say that we will be in theaters on August 18th, hopefully wow. a theater near you which is really exciting. Wow. I want to hear more about the details of the whole shutter deal. Like what happened? Like you have this meeting, it goes well, 
Like, do they make you go through a lengthy pitch process? This is your first feature. Was there any concern about that from them? Or did they just see your shorts and trust you? Like, just talk about the whole process and like what that was like to get the actual green light from them and get the movie funded and all that. Yeah. I mean, I will say that just the trauma of 2020 and COVID makes a little, this a little bit of a blur for me, but I do think that shutter is pretty remarkable in that they, they do trust the filmmakers. They needed cast approval, especially for main cast, you know, but they did not have many notes about the script were incredibly respectful and were pretty hands-off. I, I have made about six short films, uh, a few of which have done pretty well. And so I, I think I did have a, a bit of a body of work as a writer-director that, to help put their minds at ease. And I think, frankly, having Molly Elfman as our producer, and then later David Visti, who also produced How to Blow Up a Pipeline and, and many other great films, put them at ease. I mean, they they really do have a track record and they know how to put together a movie and they know how to deliver so I think being in their hands, you know, they could trust the the skittish first time filmmaker a little more. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I really do. I, I mentioned this to uh, to Liz. I'm currently on strike, and so Shutter and and IFC and I are not in communication right now. But that said, I I, I really don't have enough nice things to say about working with them. It really was a pleasure. I do want to get into the strike, but I want to go back to any advice you can give filmmakers who are brokering their own deal or working with reps who are brokering a deal in this marketplace? I mean, if you, again, I know you can't share contract points, but what I'm getting at is, were you or your advocates trying to work out a director's fee that would protect you in case there was no theatrical or were you depending on a back end or what was your vantage point as you negotiated with Shutter, or were you overly flexible? Like what was what was the strategy in, in figuring out a deal with them for you as a director? Well, I'm lucky I have a great agent, Carolyn Civitz at UTA. And if I didn't, I would be in a lot of trouble because my personal attitude was you you want to make my movie? I'll do it for free. You know, it was it was very goofy. <laughs> and you know, I think she, she and Molly did their best to protect me from myself in that sense. Yeah, I mean it's tough. I think I think having a savvy producer because Carolyn is quite savvy as an agent but having Molly who understands I think both sides pretty well like she understands that Shutter doesn't have billions of dollars to spend and like what their financial reality really is and how to get us the best deal possible within the context of that reality it's just it's just a landscape that I don't know as well so I guess my advice would be that if you don't have that person already on your team if you have that person in your network who can just talk you through that landscape it's really helpful because you don't want to be overly flexible and you don't want to hold up a deal to get your first feature made, you know, and, and I, I know that position of just sort of like not knowing how far to push. So are you, I guess the question is like, is this like, is filmmaking now like the main thing that you do to pay your bills? Are you still doing production design work? Like, how are you providing for yourself? And I guess going back to this other question, was the deal good enough that you could live for a couple of years or what? what is your... Your situation there, money-wise, now, I guess. On this film, I made minimum wage. I'm I'm not going (laughs) to see. I mean, frankly, I Brendan and I are lucky to have so. So my writing partner is a was a boom operator, and just to brag about him for a minute, boomed Black Swan, boomed Birdman was like wow, great great boom operator. Not just a boom operator, like the top tier boom hop. I actually all the way 
I was really in the non-union indie indie world as an art director and production designer. And that that was our, you know, main source of income until I would say 2020, really. Our first, we joined the Writers Guild in 2020, not because of this film. We we sold this film to Molly for $10 before we joined the Writers Guild. <laughs> so there you have it. But we joined the Guild because Annapurna commissioned us to adapt a horror novella. Wow. And that's something that's still is yet to be made. But it was a huge moment for us both, you know, sort of personally, professionally. And it was perfect timing because, of course, COVID hit and all production disappeared. So so since that time, we have been scraping together a living as writers, primarily. And, you know, we're we're hoping to be able to get back to work very soon. Nice. Well, let's get back to the strike. So can you talk a little bit about why you're striking, why you're picketing? To someone who may be listening and be like, whatever, who cares? <laughs> the strike's still going on? What's happening? Why is the strike still? That's what my opinion. Why is the strike still going on? What's going yeah, on Yeah, the strike's still going on because the AMPTP refuses to negotiate with us. The AMPTP being the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. They pretend that they can't negotiate with more than one person at a time. So currently they're talking to the actors. For that, they were talking to the directors. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of an existential moment for the film industry in general uh, and for writers particularly. Uh, there's multiple reasons we're on strike, you know, ranging from the basic minimums, wanting to to have the, our basic minimum pay be, commensur- uh, be raised commensurate to inflation. We are trying to build in protections around AI and the use of AI so that that tool, which is not going away, is in the hands of the writers and not the producers. There are a lot of issues that I'm still learning about because I'm not a television writer about uh, staffing minimums and writers' rooms, the sort of shrinking of of the culture of apprenticeship in writers' rooms. And it used to be that writers, when they were credited with an episode, they could actually be on set, learn how things are done, and eventually become showrunners themselves. Those opportunities are no longer available. And then, of course, there's transparency and residuals. So these streamers, which in 2007, when we were negotiating and, and went on strike, you know, claimed that they were new media and that we don't know what's going to happen or if they're even going to be around in a few years. And so we're given a bit of a pass in terms of not being transparent about their numbers and now have this practice of paying upfront and not paying residuals to writers. We don't receive residuals. This becomes unsustainable because a, a huge part of our year is looking for work and pitching on work. And sur- we survive on residuals quite often. So, you know, I know that just felt like a, a just a explosion of issues. <laughs> but, you know, the WJ is willing to negotiate on all of them. And the AMPTP is refusing to counter on those issues, not meaningfully anyway. So we are on the picket lines for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. So they have come to the table with with some concessions. They're just not at all reasonable, basically. Yeah. So actually, the WGA has posted their position. And then for each for each point, the AMPTP's counter. So you can see it on, on many issues, they refuse to counter at all. And then on some of the issues, the counters are kind of so laughable that they're not they're not really they don't seem serious. So I can I can dig that up and send it to you guys if you want to put it. In no, the that's OK. <laughs> I, I just feel like 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 what do they think is going to happen? Like, do they think that you're going to just cave and that the writers are just going to be like, OK, we're sorry, we'll go back to work. Like, because clearly that's not what's going to happen here. Like they're going to have to to actually talk turkey. 
like, what do you think they're thinking? <laughs> well, what I've heard from writers who have been around for a few strikes now is that when they were negotiating in previous years, they were negotiating with studio heads. And those are, can be difficult negotiations and they can be contentious, but now they're really negotiating with studio heads and tech bros, people who come from a different <laughs> industry, you tech know, who bros. are not used to a unionized industry and certainly don't really value relationships the way that folks in Hollywood value them. So, you know, I think that that's part of the issue is that there, there sort of is a, a complete cultural disconnect. I do wonder what they're thinking. I do wonder why David Zaslav throws a, a party at Cannes in the midst of all this. Like, it just seems insane. But I, I just do think we are operating on two different planets. Going back to your emotional experience, being on this high, releasing your film, gearing up for theatrical, having 99.9% positive reviews of your film, and also having to adhere to the not being able to go back to business at hand with the WGA's restrictions, you know, rightfully so. Where do you, where are you finding creative fulfillment? How are you keeping yourself inspired? Well, we are encouraged by the Guild to do our own work right now on spec. You know, we we can do our own thing. We just can't deliver any writing to any AMPTP signatories. So we, Brendan and I are doing a pass on Gordon on the script that I mentioned before that is that is bigger than Birth Rebirth in scope. And that's the movie that we're hoping goes next and that we're hoping to to go back into development with when the strike is over. We're working with Molly Elfman again, and we were developing it uh, before the strike. So that's that's where my heart is going, definitely into that movie. I'm so glad you said that, because I am hearing from my colleagues that they're being encouraged to put their pencils down completely, even for personal projects. And I just keep thinking that doesn't make sense. Artists. Yeah, I, I mean, we're artists. Like, you know, I think I haven't heard that from the guild. You know, I think that. Oh, this is not, not even a guild member. This is oh. someone who wants to be in the guild. So they're just so afraid of transgressing in oh. any way that they are not writing. I think the way to think about it is, you know, it's it's a little bit easier to visualize with, you know, a, a, an auto parts factory. You know, you wouldn't cross the picket line to go to work. You wouldn't pick up the thing and do the thing, you know, and we we shouldn't be meeting with struck companies. We shouldn't be meeting with the folks on the other side of the table, either physically or in Zoom rooms. But but that doesn't prohibit us from being creative ourselves and, you know, preparing our own house so that when this strike ends, we are able to Zoom ahead. You know, I mean, we all and we are all going to go back to work with these folks at the end of the day. So, you know, yeah. I don't know what I'm uh, saying. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. What I'm, I'm curious about is like you're on strike. Like, is it basically assumed across the whole union that like, all the writers have enough acorns stuffed away to like brave the strike or is there any kind of protection for, from the union to like make sure that everybody can keep their lights on and put food on the table during the strike or is it just kind of like well hope you did what you're supposed to do and save some money away like what's the situation there i've talked to folks on the picket line who are driving uber we're doing uber eats wow you know i mean we're not all Ryan Murphy. So, you know, it's, it's tough out there. There, there are, there's the actors fund and there are specifically emergency strike funds that you can apply for, for assistance. There are 0% interest loans that the guild is giving out, you know, so there are, there is support and we have m many of us 
knew this, you know, have known this is coming for a while and have been saving and preparing for it, but it it is incredibly hard. And certainly the longer that it goes on, you know, it's more of a challenge, but yeah, I mean, I think folks are finding their way. We, we, we are, have been, uh, okay, how do I put this? Actors and writers spend a lot of time looking for work. And I think maybe what the AMPTP didn't bank on is that we have the stomach for this because they've created the conditions where we've had to. Wow. Uh, yeah. I think it's time for us to move on to our final six questions. I want to hear a little bit about like, you're, you're, you're on the picket lines. Like I kind of assumed that there was like a lot of stuff that could still be shot during this time but then I talked to a friend of mine who's a union dimmer board operator and he was saying that pretty much since the strikes happened like he has not been able to go to work at all because the teamsters won't cross any picket line ever ever so is is it is that accurate is like the the town completely shut down and like there's really no work happening or are there still some productions happening that you guys are picketing weekly daily yeah so in la as of the end of june i believe there were no permits out in la for major productions like no major shoots there are five going on in new york right now three of which are ryan murphy shows american horrors story and we we've been picketing them teamsters won't cross picket lines a lot of iaxi members will not cross picket lines and have been standing with us in solidarity but yeah i mean these things are still going on but they are going to run out because they're not allowed to write any new material so I think we're going to see them peter out over the next month. Yeah, that's weird because like Ryan Murphy is a writer, right? But then he sure is. He, but he's also, <laughs> you know, running shut. Like, so isn't that a conflict of interest? Like, that seems a little strange. I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> I'm not the first one to say this, I guess. Wow, that's crazy. And then, but then, how does a show like that even go without Teamsters? Like, they must be figuring out some other way to do it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think we're also not able to cover all entrances of all locations at all times. So, mm. I mean, this it's it's funny with this union stuff is that the, it, it's it's a it's a bit old fashioned in terms of like a picket line is actually human beings and they are actually blocking an entrance. You know, so it's it's funny to think about because you know you would think that we all don't cross the theoretical picket lines but but for the teamsters they're physical and so we have to be there and so and so i know the productions have been changing call sheets to to give wow. an accurate time so that the writers show up and the trucks are already inside and oh, there's, wow. been, there's been a, a game of cat and mouse going on um for sure in terms of productions trying to evade pickets crazy yeah all right <laughs> I'm in support of the strike and I picketed. <laughs> I didn't mean to cut you off. I just no, really no. want to get to these other questions because I they're also very meaty. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? So it's funny. The first film I made was during the 2007 writer's strike. Brendan and I were both <laughs> crew members out of work because the writers were on strike. And we co-wrote and I directed a movie called Rising Up, which is a fake documentary about the zombie civil rights movement. It was very silly. <laughs> <laughs> it was 27 minutes long, which was too long Whoa. for a short. And I look back on it with a lot of pride. I mean, we shot it over six months of weekends because we just couldn't pay properly anyone. <laughs> and so my family is in it. Everyone I know is in this movie multiple times. And I'm really proud of it uh, in terms of what we were able to accomplish and the scope. I think it should be 12 minutes long, max. I think, you know, some of the jokes don't hold up so well. But yeah, it was a transformative experience. It was amazing. So I'm, I'm really glad we made it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Um, 
man, this, I don't know if this is the best, but I was really, really anxious right before we shot for three birth. I mean, I had been alone in my room with COVID thinking about it for two years, not having COVID, just <laughs> in COVID universe. And my therapist said to me, I, I, I talked to my therapist about it right before we shot. And I said, what if, what if an actor comes to me and I don't know what to say? What if I like, you know, what if I just don't know? What if I, you know, and she said, you're the director, just look mysterious. <laughs> and, and it was kind of flippant and she, you know, and, and I, I think the spirit of that advice or what I took from it was very much like, you don't have to have all the answers and you can allow room for other people to help you. You know, I don't think I, you know, smoked a long cigarette and, and was able to look appropriately mysterious, but I, I did relax and leave some room for the creativity of other people to answer questions that I still had open. What's some really horrible advice that you've been given with regard to filmmaking? Okay, again, I don't think this is horrible advice, but I think in the context, it led me astray, which is there's no such thing as a perfect investor. And and I will say that it is true. That advice is true, just as it is for any collaborator. There's no such thing as a perfect anything. But I was given that advice when I expressed a lot of doubt about working with this financier. And my gut, in my gut, I knew it was not going to work. And I knew that it was wrong. And I think that's what I take from that experience is just like when you know, you know. And it's important, especially when you're a little green and when you're new and when everyone is going to tell you that, that they know what is up and that you don't know yet. That, that sometimes it's okay to listen to yourself in those situations when you can really see some danger coming around the corner. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? To not go back to the art department. I mean, no offense to the art department, but my goal is to make a living as a writer and a director. Um, I, I think my dream is to continue to make independent films. I, I'm not I'm not really a Marvel person and I'm not trying to scale up to a tremendously large level, but I also know how difficult a road it is to make the films at the scale that I want to make them. So I think I look at, you know, Cheryl Dunier and Eliza Hipman and Karin Kusama as examples of people who are able Able to make a career directing some episodic television, you know, and, and interesting projects, you know, doing some things that are maybe a little more lucrative, but also somewhat creatively fulfilling. And then at the same time, not losing sight of their personal projects that take longer to develop and are probably less of a payday. That pilot of Yellow Jackets, my friend, was just truly amazing. Um, <laughs> if you could go back in time, what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh, like, I guess don't try to, there's no such thing as nailing it. I mean, this is kind of related to the not having all the answers thing, you know, that I was talking about earlier, which is just that like, you know, in high school, I was a percussionist. I thought I was going to be a musician and there's nothing scarier than having to count 147 and a half measures and then crash cymbals. And like, if you're off, you really look like an idiot, you know, like it's, it's not, <laughs> not good. <laughs> and so that like that like pole vaulter like moment of performance kind of pressure is not something I've ever been great at. And directing is more of a sustained effort. And every day you're going to make a ton of decisions and you're going to biff one of them every day. And so it really is sort of an aggregate of of your decisions and your ability to be present and your ability to foster collaboration. And so I think that's what I would tell myself is just give myself a little more grace for the mistakes and resilience in terms of bouncing back from them. Last question. Is making movies hard? Hard, but rewarding. I, I mean, I can't think of anything else that I'd rather do. Amazing. 
did so, it. <laughs> where, where should people go if they want to learn more about your film and where they can see it and all that stuff? My company's website is retrospectorfilms.com, which I'm happy to send you guys for if there's show notes. But that's where we'll be posting information about the film. We'll have a nationwide theatrical release August 18th. So I hope you see it in a theater near you. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Liz, what do you remember about our chat with Laura? I love Laura. Laura's very cool. I remember thinking they were very open about the process, about their own anxiety about directing. And I loved how forthright they were about the strike and how passionate they were to fight for for rights as a writer. I, I don't know. I, this is genuinely like one of my favorite conversations was just chatting with, with them. What did you think? Yeah, Laura was great. I remember that they said like the complete story of how they raised the funds for their film. And that was really awesome, especially since it was like, I think they said it was a $3 million budget or something, which is another thing. They were super open talking about like what the movie was budget wise, which doesn't always happen. So yeah, that was kind of amazing. And just to hear that story and how like that can happen and it's not you know, completely impossible to, to reach those heights. I think that was really cool. But they also went through the Sundance Writers Lab, I think. So, like, it was just interesting to hear a little bit more about that process and how that works and how you can really take advantage of that situation. And, and I mean, obviously, not every movie that goes to the Sundance Labs has that kind of, rea- you know, like, trajectory. So, like, I thought that was just really cool how they really capitalized on it and made it made the most out of everything, all the success that they had around the project. Oh, wait, and one more thing is that if you combine the cast of Molly Elfman, Laura's producer's film, Next Exit, and Laura's first feature, so if you, you get, like, my two favorite actors. So Rahul Kohli <laughs> and Marin Ireland are each in those respective films, and I think they should be in a film together. And I, I well, that's my goal is one day to put Rahul Kohli and... And I also mispronounce both their names all the time. So that's also yeah. something that I have in common. But you could be the so. director to do it, Liz. You I want to do, do it. it. They're so good. You can make it happen. They're so good. <laughs> but now it's time for me to ask you the question for you're the expert. You're the expert is our segment where Eric Toms decides that we're an expert and he puts forth a question where we answer it like experts. And the question that Eric Toms has for us this week is. Is advertising in my film, i.e. stage a scene in front of Subway Sandwich Shop, you know, pro, you know, promotion, brand integration, a plausible way to make money on my film? Ulrich, is it? No. Next question. <laughs> Just kidding. But yeah, I basically do believe that it, for indie filmmakers, like this is not a vi- vi- viable way to raise budget or to make the movie. Like those deals, those, you know, in, in movie advertising and, and, you know, sponsorship or whatever, like that is for studio level films where they can actually, you know, make money 
from <laughs> that said advertising where they know the movie's going to be in theaters where it's going to reach millions of people or it's going to be on a platform like Netflix or or HBO Max and like they they have like the the stars in the movie and everything like you can't just like I've had so many people come up to me and, or approach me about like raising money for films and saying yeah what about product placement in my indie feature and then like even companies exist well they will convince you that if you give them money that they will place products in your movie which is total bullshit and whoever is saying they're doing this is completely full of crap like he, this guy sweet guy out of Atlanta who's like really nice and like has this comic book movie they want to make he like showed me all these emails he had with this person about like oh yeah like you know if you if you give me five thousand dollars then i'll do this work and blah 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 and then i can like get x budget committed to your movie before it's even made blah blah and i'm like this is total bullshit like there's no way that would ever happen for an unknown original ip with no connections to any studio or to any major talent it's just not gonna happen so like i don't know i feel like whoever's doing that out there shame on you for trying to convince people that you could actually do that for them <laughs> and i'm just curious am i way off liz or are you on are you agree no, on this? no i one? agree with you i'm laughing because i have three counter examples two counter examples but they, there's a reason that those films sure. worked but i completely agree with you well before i even get into the counter examples when i was on slated I received a message. I won't I won't out this guy, but I think everyone receives a message from this guy. And I bet your friend from Atlanta is this is the guy your friend is talking about. But he just sends these bulk messages to people on Slated talking about brand integration. And he does charge an upfront fee. And it's absurd. So I'm with you. Lady Parts did fundraise in part through some degree of product placement and brand integration Mm. because it was through the pharma like big pharma world and the medical support world because it had a very like that's a film that integrated medical supplies into its plot line that could benefit these companies that provided like pre-mastectomy bras or post-mastectomy bras and then if you put that bra in the film they they were gonna give the filmmaker some money so i'm just saying like that's interesting but we had celebrity eps we had cast attachments like it wasn't an unknown film do you know how much roughly that is i wouldn't even be i would i would get in trouble if i said i don't actually remember and it wasn't the full budget but it wasn't nothing you know i think it was a meaningful chunk and then the other thing is the film that I'm helping produce right now that has Ed Harris and Morgan Freeman, I'm not saying it was funded through brand integration, but I can say that uh, the director came from the commercial world and I helped set up a meeting with him and a brand and they were talking about potentially getting involved in post-production. But that was a movie with massive stars and massive yeah. potential. I completely agree. If it is an indie feature with no name cast or even no face cast, there's no way. What? Why? What would you? Why would a company invest money in that? Well, yeah, well, Ed Harris and Morgan Freeman, like that, totally makes sense. You know, yeah, very. And who knows if that's even going to happen? But I just wanted to use it as a counterexample that, like, if you set yourself up to be a certain budget level, a certain cast, then yes, it's very meaningful. But if you're unslated and you're getting like a predatory email from the same guy that's that I actually was teaching this class a few weeks ago and someone asked me about product integration and they he name dropped the guy who messaged me unslated. 
And I was like, this guy is just it's, sending it's out bulk same, emails. It's probably the same guy because I think yeah. they were on Slated too. So I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. Yeah, it's dangerous. Oof, crazy. But what I, I do, I mean, I know we say this every show, but I really do want to know. Are there other examples out there, right? Like, yeah. did you, did you, the the proverbial you, did you fund your film through any sort of brand integration or product placement? Please tell us, send us, send us your email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or you could send us a question or comment or suggestion as well. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. We want all of you to check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. They have lots of amazing resources. Thanks to Laura Moss for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymuth, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week. I'm Liz Manichel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed. Oh, and Speed of Life. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Okay. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.